All right. It's been a great morning, hasn't it? Mm. Thank you for that hint, honey. Appreciate that. I got that. Everybody, did everybody receive that? Okay. I want to make sure because I received it, so I didn't know if y'all received it too. So, okay. That was good. She's really, she's really, y'all have spouses that are really good at giving you hints? Uh-huh. Or being very overt, right? Either way, right? Elbow, elbow. Um, how many of you have ever hired a consultant? I would say how many of you are consultants, right? You say, well, I'm a consultant. So businesses hire consultants for various reasons, right? They want to increase sales. They want to increase efficiency, right? I mean, there's all kinds of consultants in the world today, right? I just spoke to somebody. He said, I'm a consultant. What does that mean? I don't know what that means. What are you consulting? I don't know, right? But when you're, when you're wanting a, a specialization or you're wanting to address a problem or to look at a problem, you hire a consultant. We're going to look today at the most bizarre story. Now, how many of you knew that donkeys talked? Okay. Now, I have to admit, I went into Pastor Dennis this week, and I said, do you think we could get a donkey for Sunday? Yes, okay. So we'll, we will say, the next time we go over the story of Balaam, we'll, we'll, bring, we'll bring the donkey out. I thought maybe with the baptism and the scaffolding already that we probably had enough going on. So anyway, we'll talk about the donkey. You say, what, what are we talking about donkeys? I thought we were talking about Revelation. Well, Jesus brings up the story of Balaam in the donkey, and not specifically the donkey, but he brings up Balaam, who was a consultant for hire. Okay, let me explain this. So this is back in the days when the Israelites are in the wilderness, but they're approaching, they're teetering on the edge of the promised land, okay? This is found in Numbers, by the way, and we'll go there in a minute, but they're teetering on the edge of the promised land, and um, they are there with the Moabites and the Midianites. Those are the people who are occupying the promised land. I hope you knew that the promised land wasn't vacant. Okay, there wasn't, it wasn't just like tumbleweeds and nobody there. It was, there were inhabitants already in the promised land. Everybody with me? There were people already there. So God, God gave his command to drive out the inhabitants of the promised land because he had made a covenant with his people and he had promised them this land, thus the promised land. We don't have time to get into the full of all of that today. So anyway, Moses is leading the people. They're on the edge of the promised land. And then there is this consultant prophet for hire named Balaam. Now, what I mean by prophet for hire? Basically, show me the money and I'll go wherever you want to go. That's the prophet for hire. He was a consultant. Okay. I'm not knocking consultants. If you're a consultant, I'm so sorry. We can talk afterwards. Okay. Anyway, I'm not, I'm not ridiculing consultants. So, but he was a prophet for hire, in other words. And basically, kings would hire him to speak favorably and bless their kingdom and curse their enemies. Okay. And so that's what Balaam did. So you, you showed him the money, he would go and do that. Okay, and that's where the context is of what we're about to read. Just that's the background of who Balaam was, because this is important because Jesus is about to mention it in his third letter to the churches, the church of Pergamum. Okay, so you need to have that context before we go into Jesus's letter. Let's look at Jesus's letter to Pergamum, the church of Pergamum in Asia Minor, Revelation 2, Revelation chapter 2, verse 12. 
If you're there, say, I'm there. Okay. If you're not there, say, I'm getting there. Okay, good deal. Revelation, that's at your end of your Bible, okay? Chapter 2, verse 12. All right. And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword. Verse 13, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who taught Balak, uh, Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual immorality. So also you have some who hold the teaching of the Nicolaitans. We've heard them before in the church to Ephesus. Uh, it says, verse 16, Therefore repent. If not, I will come to you soon in war against them with the sword of my mouth. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Let's pray. Father God, we come to you in the name of Jesus, and we ask you, Holy Spirit, that you would enlighten our minds today, because we cannot understand apart from your enlightenment. We cannot hear apart from you uh, giving us that ability to hear from you today, God. So we pray that you'd give us ears to hear. Tune our ears today to your voice. We pray that you would remove any barrier that the enemy would seek to throw up, any distraction, any, uh, anything, any thought that would seek to come into the mind that would not be of you, God. We pray against that in the name of Jesus. We pray also, Lord, that you would give us, Holy Spirit, a heart willing to obey and an empowerment to obey what you teach us today. So here we are, your servants, saying, teach us, O Lord. And we pray this in the authority in the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. All right. So uh, Pergamum, you say, what is this interesting name? What is this interesting church? So you know what you need to know? A little context about Pergamum, all right? When you go into a city, don't you like to know a little bit about the city? right? They used to have these little tourist guide things, right? Again, I'm dating, my, I'm dating myself. You would go to the visitor center in a state, right? And there would be maps and there'd be all these little things that you could do. And you'd pull out these little placards and you'd pull out all these little brochures. Anybody know what I'm talking about? It would tell you all about the city, okay? Give you, give you things to do, right? Ways that you can spend your money, right? Okay. And so anyway, Pergamum was, was a major spot in Asia Minor, and it was a place of temple worship uh, to pagan gods, and it hosted temples dedicated to the Caesars. Now, y'all remember Caesar Augustus, right? And Julius, all these various Caesars. So what they did is they created temples that worshiped and viewed Caesars as gods. And so they, and, and really it was expected through the whole Roman Empire that you would make your way and you would worship because you wanted to pledge allegiance and devotion if you were a Roman citizen to the Caesar. And so they built these temples. And so when you see that there is a reference here to where Satan's throne is, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is in verse 13, quite possibly Jesus is talking about Caesar, okay? Because what do we know? What do we know about who rules this world? Who rules this world and has dominion over this world right, is Satan. 
the, in man's kingdom that man establishes. And for the whole known world, let me tell you, the guy who was the guy was Caesar. Okay? And so Jesus is coming directly against the man-made setup and man-made kingdom of this earth. And he says, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. And so in Pergamum, they, it was a huge religious and political center, okay? And they actually had a large altar dedicated to Zeus. The worship of the emperor as God was also strongly emphasized, even required as we talked about. And you can imagine this is a major problem for the church of Jesus Christ in the middle of this political and pagan culture, right? So all around the culture is saying, you need to worship Caesar, right? Because not only that, that's our major economic thing. We're getting tourist dollars. People are coming in from all over the Roman region, right? And they're bringing their money. And so Christians, what do you think you're doing talking about another God? What do you think that you're doing not giving allegiance to or refusing to work on the temple of Caesar? So this is the atmosphere that Jesus is speaking to. So now you know a little more context when we say, I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is, yet you hold fast to my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who was killed among you where Satan dwells. Verse 14, now here's where Balaam's gonna come into things. He says, but I have a few things against you. You have some there, that means in the church, because that's who we're writing to, uh, Jesus is writing to, who hold the teaching of Balaam who taught Balak to put a stumbling block before the sons of Israel so that they might eat food sacrificed to idols and practice sexual morality. So let's back up, give a little bit more context, and you can write this down. Jesus knows the true motives of your heart. That's what he's saying here. Jesus knows the true motives of your heart. You say, Pastor, what does this have to do with Numbers 22 and Balaam and the donkey? Well, let's go over the story real quick, okay? Again, Balaam's a prophet for hire. Uh, the king of Moab goes and says, I want you to come over here because I know these Israelites, they're gonna try to come and take my land. They're encroaching on my land. And here's what I want you to do. I want you to come over there and I want you to curse them. So he tries to hire Balaam to come and curse the Israelites. And so just to summarize the story, we don't have time to go through it. It's Numbers 22 through 23, 24. If you want to tell a fun story to your kids, this is a great one, okay? This is a fun one to tell because it's of the donkey talking. So if you'd like to do that, I encourage you to read the whole thing through. I will quickly summarize it for you. Um, basically, he, the, the, uh, the Moabites, they come, uh, representative of the king. They say, we want you to come, curse the, curse the Israelites. He says, well, I need to go consult the Lord. He goes and consults the Lord. And, and the, Lord, the Lord says, yes, you can go, okay? You can go, but you can only speak what I tell you to speak. You can't put any of your stuff in there. Only speak what I tell you to speak. So he goes, okay, right? So they do that. And so he gets on his trusted donkey that he's ridden for years and years. And the donkey starts ramming him up against the wall. And the donkey starts just, and then eventually the donkey just sits down. Anybody got a donkey like that? Uh-huh. Anybody got a child like that? Okay. All right, I'm not going to continue on on that, Sam. Okay, yeah. And so, and so the donkey just sits down. Well, well, Balaam's just beating that thing. He's just saying, what in the world? I this guy, I don't know what's gotten into him. Well, eventually, the donkey turns around and says, what are you doing and why are you beating me? Now, you can imagine Balaam's face. What, 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 imagine if the donkey 
started talking to you, or kids, if your Legos started talking to you because you're throwing them all over the place, right? Huh? No. And so that's, that's what happens. And so, and, well, what Balaam didn't see was there was an angel of the Lord that was stopping the donkey everywhere the donkey turned. And the donkey says, hey, can't you see? I, I can't go ahead. Angel's in front of me. And it says that God opened his eyes. Now, you say, hold on a second here. God told Balaam to go ahead and speak the word, only the words, right? So he's just obeying. On the surface, you read this, and you're like, well, he's just obeying. He's just doing exactly. Why in the world is the angel of the Lord standing in front of this donkey continually? Why, why is this happening? Because God knows the true motives of your heart, okay? He knew that Balaam was a prophet for hire. He knew that what was the number one motivator for Balaam? right here. And he knew that he, he's going to go to this situation, and if, if God doesn't get his attention, he's quickly going to fall to the God of money. Does this make sense? Because Jesus knows the true motives of your heart, and here's what he's saying to the, you say, what does this apply to Pergamum? Because he knows the true motives of our heart. There are people in the church of Pergamum who no doubt are influenced by the culture and they're coming in and they're influencing the church of God and they're saying, hey, it's okay to do what you want sexually. It's okay to eat whatever you want even though this stuff has been dedicated to idols. It's okay. Where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. Hold on. Don't cheapen the grace of Jesus. And that's what Jesus is saying to the church at Pergamum. He's saying, hold on, wait a minute. There's some that among you that are doing what Balaam did. And basically, he is, he is serving another God. Oh, sure, he may give lip service. Oh, sure, he may be doing the actions. But in his heart, when you peel back the layers, the heart is for himself and not for the Lord God. And we know that the story doesn't end there because in Numbers 25 and in Numbers 31, it, spread, it says explicitly that Balaam gave advice to the foreigners. So here's what happened. To finish up the story of Balaam, he ends up going to the king of Moab. The king of Moab says, okay, now I want you to curse these Israelites. See all those people over there? Do your curse thing, okay? And you know what happened? Balaam blesses them. He says, no, the Lord told me to bless them. Why? Because we know there's a lesson here. What God blesses, doesn't matter, man cannot curse. What God has chosen, what God has anointed, what God has blessed, man cannot come against and curse. And so Balaam, even though he may be a prophet for hire, he's gonna, he says, yes, I will do what only, after that donkey sat down and talked to him, he said, yes, I will only speak what you want me to speak. And so that's what he spoke. He spoke blessing instead of cursing. Now, I don't know why the king of Moab can't figure it out. So he says, okay, not this area, let's go to another area. Now, there's a reason for this, because in that pagan culture, the God of this area wasn't the God of this area. The God that maybe ruled in this area, you know, of the 300 gods, maybe he was the regional God for that area. That didn't work out. So now we're going to go over this area, okay? And so then he asked Balaam again, now, okay, now I want you to curse these people. You see them? Put your hands out there and just pour a cursing on them, okay? What does he do? He pours a blessing on them, right? And now the king of Moab is really upset. He says, fine, I got one more area of my kingdom. I'm going to take you over there. All right, okay, here we go. Now, would you please do what I've hired you to do, right? What does Balaam do? 
He blesses them. He says, no, the Lord God has chosen these people. They are his people. And basically, there's nothing that you can do, O king, to come against them. Basically, your future is already, is already sealed because God has already chosen them as his chosen people. Everybody still with me? Okay, and so, that's, and so basically, Balaam goes home empty-handed, no payment because there's no service. And he sends them, he sends them home. But then you know what Balaam does? This, we, we think that's the end of the story, and I wish it was the end of the story, and I wish Balaam learned his lesson. But what, what, we, what we don't see explicitly, but we can infer, is that at some point, the king of Moab and the king of Midian went back to Balaam and said, okay, what can we do to infiltrate the people? If we can't directly curse the people via the Lord, then can we do something to cause the people to turn away from the Lord? You see? And so he says, from within. And so what we see is that Balaam somehow instructs, we've given this impression in Numbers 30, 25 and 31, that he somehow instructs them to basically marry foreign women and to commit sexual morality among the people. Now, there's a gruesome story in Numbers 25. Gruesome slash graphic slash rated R, Okay. So I'm not going to tell the whole story. You can just refer to that. But basically, you can see the consequence of this sin in Numbers 25, and it is attributed to Balaam giving this advice. And so Jesus is saying, hey, this same thing is happening to you, Pergamum. There's people, there's deceivers among you. There's compromisers among you who are seeking to water down, who are seeking to compromise and not portray the true gospel. Secondly, you can write this down. Grace does not mean abuse of freedom. Grace does not mean abuse of freedom. God is very clear that we are free in him. Hear me. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, you are sealed by the Holy Spirit. Okay? You were sealed by the Holy Spirit. Your debt has been nailed to the cross, Colossians 2, Paul says in Colossians 2. Yet his grace is not cheap, and our freedom came at a cost. Jesus is telling the Pergamum church that he will not let his grace continually be abused as the Nicolaitans were doing. And one of the big things is sexual immorality among the people of God. And Paul is very clear about this. He says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12, there was all kinds of sexual morality going on in the Corinthian church. Here's what he says in 1 Corinthians 6, 12. He says, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. Food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for the food, and God will destroy both one and the other. The body is not meant for sexual morality, but for the Lord and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Never. Or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one with her? For as it is written, the two shall become one flesh. But he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. Flee from sexual morality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but the sexual immoral person sins commits his, uh, against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, but you were bought with a price to glorify God in your body. 
Do we think Paul's clear there? I actually don't see any gray here at all. I think he's very absolutely abundantly clear. And he's clear that in this sexual sin, that there's something there, that the two becoming one, just as Jesus said, right? Okay, the two shall become one and joined together. And so this is, this is significant, and this is going on inside the body of Christ, inside the church, and, and, and Jesus is addressing it straight on in the church of Pergamum. Now, I want to be very clear. Listen, sexual sin breaks the heart of God. Gluttony breaks the heart of God. Lying, cheating, stealing breaks the heart of God. Coveting breaks the heart of God. Do you hear what I'm saying? We are all image bearers made in his image. And when God sees his children not living out his image, it breaks his heart. And when he sees his children tearing fellow image bearers up, it equally breaks his heart. So hear me, church. We're tempted to elevate a sin as a worse sin and then have degrees of lesser sins. But all of it, as image bearers of Christ, when we don't bear the image as we should and reflect him as we should, it breaks his heart, and that is called sin. God gives us his guidelines out of his grace and out of his love for us because the one who created you knows you and knows the best way for you to be. Make sense? Right? Don't you think the one who wrote the instruction manual should be the one who has a say? Don't you think the guy who invented whatever it was should be the one to speak the most and should be the most knowledgeable about it? Let me tell you, that's the Lord of the universe. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So if he made it and he knows you, why in the world do we think that suddenly we can be smarter than God and go outside of his ways and go outside of his guidelines? And hear me. Every sin is against God. Every sin is saying, I want my way and my kingdom more than your kingdom and your ways. Bottom line. And we as the church have to be careful. We have to call sin, sin, of course. But let's not think that there are five, six, seven, eight degrees of sin. It all breaks the heart of God. It all goes against his gracious guidelines for us. Amen? Amen? And Jesus, look, I'm just telling you what Jesus said, right? Okay? Jesus is calling out the church at Pergamum, and he's saying, there are some that have infiltrated among you, there are false teachers among you that are not calling sin, sin. That they're, 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 oh yeah, they're, they're living in the freedom, they're living in the freedom, but they're not living with the responsibility of being an image bearer, Right? Hear me, you can't walk in the freedom of Christ and not bear his image. You can't do that. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian who was killed and martyred for his faith by Hitler, said extensively in the cost of discipleship, you cannot cheapen the grace of Jesus. We should not cheapen the grace 
of Jesus. So hear me. Grace does not mean an equal or give us license to abuse the freedom that we have been given. Now, I'm going to bring it down to the heart issue because it all comes back to the heart issue. At the end of the day, we can, we can list every command. We can list all of them. We can say the Ten Commandments, forwards, backwards, upside down. But here's what we know. What we know is that unless your heart has been gripped by the love of Jesus, you're fighting a lost cause. If your heart has never realized that the truth that Jesus has come and that he has come to set you free and that he is the treasure to be adored above all treasures and he is the pearl of great price, unless you have gotten to that point and to where you see him greater than anything and anyone, oh my goodness, like it doesn't matter. You say, well, why am I going to continue in this habitual sin? You're going to continue in this habitual sin until you get a glimpse of who Jesus really is and that truth sits on you. And so, I'm not downplaying habitual sin. I'm not saying that your struggle is not real. I'm saying that Jesus understands that, okay? Jesus understands that, and his love and, uh, for us is great. And so Jesus here says, we need to correct this, compromise, and then he also does what he always does and is so beautiful to do. Jesus reminds us of our new identity. Jesus reminds us of our new identity. You can write that down. Verse 17, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name on the stone that no one knows except the one who, rece who receives it. So Jesus is calling us and reminding us about identity. Now, I have this white stone here. Everybody see it? It's not a real rock, I don't think. It's pretty light. It's one of those little office things that you put in your office, you know, paperweights kind of thing, right? Um, so in the Roman culture, you would receive a white stone when you went to a game and you were the victor in the game, the one who won would receive a white stone, okay? And that white stone gave you an all-access pass into the after-party banquets because there would be banquets then held in honor of the athletes, right? And whoever got the white stone and whoever was in the party got to get in because the white stone would be given to the victor, and so Jesus is saying to the one who conquers, I will give him a white stone and he will have access to me and he will have intimate fellowship with me. Now, you know the other implication of white stones, you know what they used them for? In a courtroom setting. In a courtroom setting, this was when the jurors said, we find him not guilty. They would put a white stone up. Jesus is saying here, to the one who follows me, to the one who stays and holds fast, that's what that literally means. It means to clings on to me and does not let go. That is the one, the conqueror there, that's the one who will get the white stone and will get access into intimate, abiding fellowship with me. Make sense? And will be reminded of their identity 
that therefore there is no condemnation who, for those who are in Christ Jesus, Romans 8.1. Because Romans 8.37 says, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Amen? And so we need to remember that we have been given We've been given this white stone, and it says that actually on this white stone that there will be a new name written, a new name that will be written and given to you, to the one who holds fast in Jesus' name. This image reinforces the idea of exclusive personal fellowship with God as the conquering Christian's reward. For the one who rises above being a nominal Christian, Jesus has special benefits you get invited to the private reception. That makes sense? Oh, the moment of salvation, the moment that you believe that you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, right? You're guaranteed uh, that you are sealed with the Holy Spirit. You receive the Holy Spirit, right? All of that happens. But I would say that not everybody who accepts and believes experiences sweet, intimate fellowship with him. Would you agree with that? And Jesus continually, in every one of these letters, the reward for the one who conquers and holds fast is intimate, sweet fellowship with the Lord. Basically, Jesus is saying, there's so much more, church. There's so much more. And he wants that sweet, intimate, beautiful fellowship with him. Yes, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Yes, the one who holds fast and endures. There will be a rich, rich reward. You know, and next Sunday, we're starting what's called core classes because identity and defining our identity in Christ is so foundational to how we live out. Maybe one of two of you believe that, I hope. No, we're going to go over this next week, and it's going to be probably a different class than you've been in before, but it's not just going to be just a series of knowledge accumulation. While there will be that, we want people to truly know the Lord, and so we need to know who he is and the names as how he has revealed himself, but also in our second session, we're going to learn our identity in him which is strongly based on Ephesians. And so let me highly encourage you to come. You say, hey, I'm not quite sure about that. I want to check that out. Just come. We're going to have cinnamon rolls. We're going to have coffee, 9 a.m. Um, it's going to be in the fellowship hall. I saw Michael perk up. He, saw cinnamon, he heard cinnamon rolls, and he started perking up. So that's going to be over there in the fellowship hall at 9 a.m. Breakfast will serve, and we'll start hard start at 9.15, okay? So I want to highly encourage you to be a part of that. Um, I'll be leading the teaching starting next week. Um, and so I, I just want to highly encourage you to be a part of that. I think you're going uh, to enjoy that. Um, who doesn't want to get to know the Lord better? All right? Don't we all want that? I mean, I, I want to know how he has revealed himself. I want to know, oh, the, the riches and the depths of the knowledge of God. I want to know that like Paul says. I want to know him more. I pray, my prayer for you is that every day you get to know him more. That's my, because that's my prayer. And let me tell you, God, God revealed himself again to me this week. You know, it's just amazing how he works. 
You know, I had somebody, I had somebody call me up and say, can I just share with you as I read the word of God, how it came alive to me and what the Lord spoke to me? Oh, man, pastor's dream. Woo, glory. This individual jumped in the car. I said, because well, I was leaving, I said, well, ride with me. And so he rode with me for an hour and I got to hear how God worked and is working in his life and how he, how he was able to really kind of have a breakthrough with something that he had been struggling with for a very long time. Time, but he read a passage that he had read over and over and over again, and but this time he read it in the living word. Man, it hit him. Do you know what I'm talking about that's ever happened to you? It's amazing. Now, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to end with how Jesus started. He said, I'm going to come to you with a two-edged sword. Has anybody ever had a really super sharp knife? super sharp. I mean, you just touch whatever it's going to touch, and it just, right? Have you ever had a dull knife? I have a feeling more of us probably have dull knives than sharp knives, right? Mm-hmm. We need to sharpen some of our knives. Jesus says, I'm going to come to you with a two-edged sword. And he actually says, hey, <laughs> add me, let me do a little commentary, Adweb. If you don't knock it off, church. I'm coming to you with the sword of my mouth. That's what he says. The thing about the sword, as Hebrews says, that the word of God is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of the joint and the marrow, and that's hard to pierce. But with the sharpest of knives, you can Jesus says, my words will come and they will cut and they will pierce and they will challenge and they will convict and they will comfort because that's what my words do. And when the living word of God hits you, you say, hold on a second. What are you talking about? I'm saying you can read this and you can read something you have read over and over and over, but when the Holy Spirit gives you the enlightenment that he gives you in, in your mind, and you have placed yourself in a position to hear from the Lord, the word of God comes alive like never before. And he speaks to you personally. He says, Travis, knock it off. <laughs> or Travis, humble yourself. Or Travis, you need to be in a posture of surrender. Travis, you need to give that person a call. Travis, you need to reconcile with this brother, right? That's what the word of God does. Travis, you need to adopt these boys. That's what the word of God does. When you read the written word and you have the Holy Spirit, the living word comes alive to you and it speaks to you in that moment. And it is the most beautiful, wonderful, perplexing, mysterious thing ever. But it's worth it. Oh, it's worth it. And Jesus says, I'm giving you this stone, and you can come in, and we can banquet together. We can fellowship together. Hold fast to me, because there's intimate fellowship to be had. I have words for you. I want to speak to you, and I just want to be with you. Let's pray.